So now let's jump in. We have been um, in a series called Justice, a Story of God series. And justice, social justice, is a hugely prominent subject in our society uh, and actually is a hugely prominent subject in the Bible. And with, with any word or concept or idea, how the Bible talks about it and how the culture talks about it are different. But there are some overlap. And uh, we started this series out of a pastoral concern out of our lead pastor, Pastor Henry, uh, and his concern was this, that most Christians seem to be unaware of how much the Bible talks about social justice and what it says about social justice. Because of this ignorance, some are in danger of buying into ideas that lure them away from genuine biblical faith, and some others are in danger of ignoring God's call on their lives to do justice. And I couldn't agree more. So we're going to continue in our journey through the whole Bible in this short series as we seek to build a better understanding of social justice from a biblical point of view so that we can seek justice and stand against injustice together in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates love for our neighbor. But first, before we get into the text for today, we need to pray for God to illuminate his word. And work in our hearts to change us, to transform our lives by renewing our minds. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us your word to tell us your story and to remind us of your presence. Your word is a lamp to our feet to show us how to walk in your ways. Your word, a light to our path so that we can follow wherever you lead us. We need you. We need the truth and the hope of your word. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we seek to know you more. Open our hearts to the work of your spirit here today. Father, we also want to pray for those that are affected by the heat, those that are without home, those that have occupations that have them outside, those that are affected by the production of their goods, uh, we just pray your hand of protection and safety and provision over them. Father, we also pray for those students in our church that are going to be going to Camp Getaway next week, uh, that they have an incredible experience in growing in their relationship with you and with others. And we're thankful for those that are uh, outside of our church community that are coming and engaging for the first time. I pray for them as well. I pray for our leaders, Henry Michael and Kyler, and all the leaders that are going up, um, that you just give them what they need to lead well, to lean into the lives of these students. That would be a transformational time for them. And we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Bible is one big story. And understanding the Bible and knowing God's purpose for our life doesn't have to be a mystery. That's why every time we get together, we open our Bibles together. But before we turn to the scripture today, I want to give us a quick review where we've been and where we're going. Um, the story of God that we have as a course on our pathway to membership helps you get a framework for the whole Bible. It tells it in 10 scenes. And the first three we've already looked at, creation that were made in the image of God and everyone's of great value separation that in our desire to be our own gods and sin, uh, we're separated from God. And the promise in God's faithfulness, he gave a promise to Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. And so this week, the next two scenes we're going to be covering are sacrifice and law, maybe ones that you are extra 
uh, familiar with. So just a high level of where we've been or where we're going, actually, is that God's people have been in Egypt and they've been enslaved. Uh, God hears the cries of his people. He sends Moses to free his people. God does this by displaying his authority, dismantling each of the Egyptian gods one by one through plagues, culminating in the last one, um, the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. Important note there is that the book of Exodus starts with Pharaoh doing this to the Israelites. Yet God provides his people protection through their faith by the sacrifice of a lamb, putting the blood on the doors, and God will pass over them. All of this pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus. God's people are let go and delivered from slavery and oppression. Then God reestablishes himself as their God. He saves them, breaks the chains of bondage. He's their deliverer and wants, them to, show, wants to show them a way to live in this world, to live as a nation of true justice, a, a return to the garden of creation a foretaste of the new creation that we'll see at the end of the series. And he gives them the law, and upon receiving it, they've already failed, worshiping the golden calf. And in doing so, God's people utterly fail time and time again for 40 years, wandering in the desert. And that's where we're going to open our Bibles in the book of Deuteronomy. So it's the fifth book in your Bible, um, and we're going to be in chapter four of the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. You can open it there. I believe it's page 197. So Deuteronomy chapter four, this uh, Deuteronomy is looking back at the law. It's the Moses's sermons to his people. They're about to enter the promised land. So verse five. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, and this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? And you can see this is about living righteous and seeing justice reign and God getting the glory through other nations, seeing a wise and understanding nation as created by the justice of God. Now I want you to flip over a few chapters, chapter 10, starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt." 
Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Okay, so there's a lot happening here. I just want to remind you of one concept that uh, Henry introduced last week is the idea of justice and righteousness as two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. Because I think in some way we inherently know or believe that if all were perfectly righteous, justice would be unneeded. But because really righteousness is justiceness or justice enacted. Tony Evans, pastor and author, puts it this way. Uh, righteousness is the moral standard of right and wrong based on God's divine standard. Justice is the equitable and impartial application of God's moral law in society. And God wants both. But because we know that people are not perfectly righteous, justice is necessary. And from what we can see in this passage, it's addressing our love and obedience to God and how to address systemic issues in our world. And I, I want to illustrate this before I jump into our point, is that uh, Tim Keller, uh, pastor, author, uh, came up with a great thought experiment called The Sequel to the Good Samaritan. Now, to remind you, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, an expert in the law is questioning Jesus about the greatest commandments and how to inherit eternal life. And he says, love God, love your neighbor, and ask, who's your neighbor? And he tells the story of the, a priest and a Levite, a priestly assistant, who just walk by this beaten and robbed man and do nothing. But a Samaritan, who the audience would not have liked, is the one who takes care of the one on the side of the road, brings him to an inn, and says he'll pay for any other charges incurred to take care of him. Now, the sequel goes this way. Put yourself in the position of the Good Samaritan. And the very next day, you walk by that same road, and there's another beaten and robbed man, and you help them. And then in the next day, there's another beaten and robbed man, and you help them. And then the next day, there are a hundred beaten and robbed men up and down this road. At some point, our desire to do justice would have to deal with the environment, the government, the leadership, the things that are systemically causing all these men to be beaten and robbed. And that's what's being addressed here in these passages today. How is it that God's people are to act differently in creating a restorative justice in this world? Now, there's an important note I want to throw on this that uh, as I was talking through my sermon with our, our new pastor, Danny, uh, this week, he, he had a, a great thing that he said, and, and I put it up here on the screen, is that Christians can be a source of justice even when we are not the cause of the injustice. We're not admitting culpability in so doing. We're agreeing with God that until Jesus comes, the world isn't as it should be. So, Let's jump in. There are three things that true godly justice seem to require for those of us that follow God. And first is worship is at the core. Worship is at the core because we are like what we worship. And if we aren't always checking, we might end up worshiping something else even when we think we're worshiping God, which we're going to see that in the text later. 
And worship is complete devotion and obedience to God. It's not just singing songs. Uh, look back at chapter 10 here, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in obedience. Love him. Serve him with all your heart and soul and observe his commands for your own good. In this worship, this obedience, what does it do? Well, that's what we saw in chapter 4. See, I've taught you these things so you may follow them, observe them, and other nations will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, and they have a God who draws near to them. It's our worship and obedience of doing what is just in this world that draws people to the God that restores the one that draws near to you and I. We are like what we worship. Okay, Jonathan, I, I hear you. You're saying we walk in obedience to God. Others will see us a wise and understanding people and come to know our God. And I love that. I want so many people in my life to know God right now. And, and we know God, God's at the heart of justice and he will do the big hard work in the hearts of people. I, I love that. But Jonathan, I have a problem. Have you been in this world? Are you hiding under a rock? Do you watch the news? Our world does not think Christians are wise and understanding people. Okay, that's a fair criticism. But I think many times for us as Christians, it's the same as the Israelites. The problem is idolatry. That we are fighting the wrong fights. We're impatient with God's timing that we're worshiping principles and ideas, thinking it's our God. So we have to be examining. And God's people here in the book of Exodus want something else to worship in their impatience. And Aaron ends up worshiping the people themselves. So if you want, you can, I'll put it on the screen as well, but turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. This is the golden calf here. And what happens is uh, Aaron says, hey, people, give me all your gold. And what he does was he took it, what they handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Note that. And then when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, no, don't, don't miss this. This is what Aaron says. At the calf, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed and presented. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You can just imagine the synonyms. But... What's happening here? Worshiping the golden calf. Aaron actually says we're going to do this to the Lord. But we know the Lord is still talking to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And we know Aaron is just trying to please the people. And so I love when Scripture kind of has humor built into it. So let's jump up to verse 21 here. And Moses comes back and he's talking to Aaron. He says, what did these people do to you? that you led them into such great sin. And here's Aaron's response. Do not be angry. You know how prone these people are to evil. 
They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever's got gold, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> are you kidding me? What? It's not my fault. These people are prone to evil. You know Moses. All I did was take the gold. I threw it in the fire and poof, out came the calf. Magic. But here's the thing. Isn't this what you and I do when we screw up? We rewrap and rewrite what happened to our benefit because we're worshiping something else. I know, I know I've done this before. Here, here's the thing. We usually think about the golden calf like my nine-year-old son who has said to me, Papa, I would never make an animal and worship it. But here's the thing, here's what I want you to focus on. We all have idols that need to be destroyed like the calf. Money, hobbies, people-pleasing, accomplishment, comfort, you name it, because these things lead to great sin and injustice in our world. But the, the more dangerous path, as I've laid out for you here in Exodus 32, uh, is that first we make an idol, and what's even more dangerous than that is then we give the idol the credit God deserves. And then thirdly, we make this new idol as if it is unto God. Now take that framework and put it over these next things because I think a lot of times it's easier for us to see it in others than in ourselves. And here's where I've seen it in myself and others. The idol is our political party as unto the Lord. The idol is cancel culture as unto the Lord. The idol is the cultural war as unto the Lord. See, we can, we can sometimes make our political party, even our view of social justice, the constitution, the cultural wars, as if it is from the Lord and to the Lord, but God is clear there is no God but Him and we have His Word. See, we must always recognize that we worship a person, not a principle. We worship a person, not a party. And His name is Jesus. And we are like what we worship. So some of our questions today might be, do I look more like Jesus or my political party? Do I look more like Jesus or cancel culture? Do I look more like Jesus or part of the cultural wars? Because if we really looked like Jesus, would it maybe look like this? He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And what's this defends the cause phrase here in Deuteronomy? Well, it's the term we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, mishpat in the Hebrew, justice, justice. See, this can't be about justice, just about retributive justice against the people that maybe made them fatherless or made them widows. It's about restorative justice because he is close to them and he is their defender. We need to draw near to God to be more like him. 
And it's actually when we draw near to the oppressed, we draw near to God. This is worship, an obedient movement toward the least of these. Because God has proclaimed himself as near to them, as their defender, and we are to be like our God. So the first requirement of justice for the Christian is having worship at the core. To draw near to him who draws near to us by drawing near to the least of these as God has said he is near to them. This is doing justice. Okay, the second requirement is sacrifice is essential. Sacrifice is essential because our world is broken. See, we saw clearly from Scripture that the retributive justice God exacts on Egypt is part of the battle against injustice. But then we also see clearly from Scripture that the restorative justice God exacts for Israel required sacrifice. All of this points right to Jesus, the one we worship. The justice we deserve is taken upon the shoulders of Jesus, and Jesus sacrifices for us so that we might live a sacrifice unto Him. The book of Romans chapter 12, which we'll get to as we're going through the book of Romans in different series over the next year or so, says we are to be a living sacrifice. That means our time, our talent, our treasure, sacrifice unto God is part of a restorative justice God wants to do in this world and a righteousness He wants to refine in us. What could that look like? Well, if you want, you can turn in uh, your Bibles to Deuteronomy 15. It's just only a few chapters away. And he's telling the people on, on how to live, and some interesting things are happening here. Um, 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Hmm. And if you think God doesn't know how we think about these things, let's jump ahead to verse 7. If anyone is poor among you in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Here's how God knows how we think. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy and among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Here's the thing. God's saying, even if it's 20 days before the debt cancellation of seven years, God is saying, still borrow the money, knowing it's going to be canceled and you won't get any of it back. I mean, talk about a serious sacrifice. And you see, it's really interesting because you see this throughout the entirety of Scripture. Uh, Craig Blomberg, who's a Bible scholar, scholar and author, says this about the view of wealth, the view of uh, economics in Scripture. It's a sacrificial way of living that is not found in any contemporary or ancient economic models. And he basically says this, that the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves. This is sacrifice. There's someone in my life that um, they don't know Jesus and they were working at a hospital. And uh, someone had come in from, uh, for surgery, an emergency surgery. And then afterward, a couple came in asking about that person. 
And they said, well, ho hopefully they'll be out in just a little bit. And they said, okay, and they went and sat down. And it looked like they remember talking or praying. And my friend went up to them and said, how do you know the guy that came in? And they said, oh, we actually don't know him. Our church called and said there, an emergency situation had happened in our neighborhood and that someone was hurt and they're having surgery. We just want to be here to love and care for him when he gets out. My friend could barely tell the story because she just was like, this is beautiful. This is what this should look like. I could, I could see what was happening. She was seeing the beauty of God lived out through these people. The couple had nothing to do with what happened to this person. They didn't even know the person, but wanted to be a part of helping. Sacrifice is essential. So, for God's requirements for true justice to reign, worship is at the core. Sacrifice is essential. And lastly, generosity is not optional. Generosity is not optional. Here's the thing. Did the Israelites deserve the incredible promised land they were about to receive? The answer is found here in Deuteronomy. If you want to turn with me to chapter 9, verse 6. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's pretty clear. Now we see that there's both restorative justice for the people of Israel and a retributive justice, looking at the other passages here, against the nations they're going into. But here's the thing, God's faithful mercy and generosity to us is our example. Jesus providing us what we do not deserve, his grace and his mercy in every good thing. That's the example we have to use. I love one of our elders and small group leaders. Uh, anytime I ask him, how are you doing? He responds with, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. It's a great response. And it, it helps us think how we should treat others better than they deserve. But here's the thing. Many times when we look around, uh, about generosity, we see it kind of as bonus points or an option to employ is what we, we would like. But God doesn't really see it that way. And I think, and, I, and I've thought this next thought, is that we might say, like, this person over here needs to lift themselves up by their bootstraps and work hard like I did. But are we then not the stiff-necked people like the Israelites? Have we forgotten that as Christians, we believe every good thing we have is from God? including our ability to work hard and prosper as a result, that our life is better than we deserve. I'm going to put up on the screen uh, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, and instructions. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. See, here's the thing. It might not be human or secular justice for someone else to get the fruit of your labors, but it is biblical justice. 
part of how God has called his people to live because the only reason you have it is because of God. And this world is broken and needs us. So we have three choices. I've earned it by my hard work and it's mine. It's all from God, but he gets a little bit of a say. It's all from God and he gets the complete say in the matter. Let me share a quick story uh, I was reading uh, about this family in Georgia. Um, they were driving along with their 14-year-old daughter, and they were at a stoplight, and on her right she saw a brand-new Mercedes, and on the left saw a homeless man. And she said, Dad, if that man had a less nice car, then that man could have a meal. Now, as a side note, this this seems true from a child's perspective, but the reality is we don't know the story of the man in the Mercedes. It could be one of the most generous people you've ever met in your life, and I, and I recognize that, but focus just on the middle for, the set, for this story. So even as they pulled away, the daughter, Hannah, insisted she wanted to do something. And her mom was like, well, what do you, I mean, what do you want to do? And she says, I want us to sell our house which sounds pretty ridiculous, but eventually, that's what this family did. They sold their home. They donated half of the proceeds to charity and bought a modest replacement. Though the sacrifice was great for them, the benefits have been greater. This is what the dad said. We essentially traded stuff for togetherness and connectedness. I can't figure out why everybody wouldn't want that deal. And this entire project is in a book called uh, The Power of Half. And, and the aim of the book isn't to get people to sell their houses. It's just to simply encourage them to step off the treadmill of accumulation, to define themselves by what they give rather than what they possess. And Hannah says this, she says, for us, the house was just something we could live without. It was too big for us. Everyone has too much of something, whether it's time, talent, or treasure. Everyone does have their own half. You just have to find it. Now, here's the thing is when we talk about social justice in topics like this, I know what some of you are thinking. Was this last point Bible-wrapped socialism? Is Jonathan a communist? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm, and here's the other thing. I'm aware of the social economic context of Israel is very different. But I'm looking at the principles that we're seeing throughout the story of God from here into the later Old Testament and into the New Testament with Jesus. You're going to see consistency. And for the Christian, generosity is not optional. It's the way in which we are to be like our God. And I also want to say, just being transparent, I, I'm still working out what this means for me and my family. I just know that when I read this stuff, I want God to uncomfortably move me in his direction. Whatever that looks like. And the other side, because the sermon could feel like I was just punching you the whole time. Um, here's the thing I also want to recognize. As a church... We actually do a lot about these things. We have incredible 
people and ministries in this church, from our foster host adopt ministries and families, our work with Union Gospel Mission, Hospitality Center for the Chinese, Somali Adult Literacy Training, Karen Refugees, our orphanage in Haiti, the list goes on. When it comes down to it, I'm so proud to be a part of this church, and that's something you are part of in this church family. But I just also know we need to continually be more like our God, and I can see we have grows, uh, ways that we need to grow as individuals and as a church. We've got to have worship at the core without any substitute idols. We need to have sacrifice as essential to our faith journey, and we need to have generosity. It's not about if, it's about who. And I love that we see in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking and giving instructions, and he says, so when you give to the needy, he's giving instructions on how to do it, and there isn't an if in there. It's all about how. It's assumed that we would. It's when you do. Here's how to do it. It's actually when we draw near to the oppressed, we draw near to God. Jesus has said, if you serve the least of these, you serve me. And so if there's one thing to take away here, it's if you haven't found a, a way to be a part of God's restorative justice plan, find that. And you can start right here in this church. Right here in this family. Because find it, this, is, this is finding our purpose in God's big story and reenacting God's generosity to us and doing that for others. It's reenacting it. But this all has to come from worship at the core, worshiping the God that's so merciful to us that he gave his only son on the cross. Because when we look at everything we've looked at in Scripture so far, being the image of God, being a blessing to all the nations by doing what is right and just, living a life of sacrifice, being a wise and understanding people, there's only one person who's able to fully do that. And that's Jesus. He's the only one to fill the law, the only one worthy and righteous and the bringer of true justice. He's our model. He's the true Israel. He's the true human. And that's who we celebrate every week when we celebrate communion. I invite you to take out the elements as we do that. Remembering his sacrifice and great mercy that Jesus had for us and remembering it until he comes. So I invite you to take the bread, his body broken for you and I. I invite you to take the cup. His blood shed for you and I. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your incredible love and mercy and faithfulness to us. God, I know how many times I failed according to your standard that you still love me, that you still give me Christ's righteousness 
and invite me to invite others to know you and be a part of a plan to give people a foretaste of the coming new creation. How exciting to be a part of that, God. You are incredible. We love you. Would, you. would you stick in our hearts those things that are from you, from your word here today, that we need to hear by your Holy Spirit, that, that we wouldn't just leave it in this moment, but you take it into Monday and the next day, and you transform our hearts. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.